Uh, to review last week, which I feel like I need to do because we started a new book, covered the entire chapter in one sermon, um, probably a little bit of review is in order. Uh, the way that this narrative began is a fellow named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons fled famine in Israel and went for them east to Moab, which is in modern-day Jordan. Um, famine is threatened or promised, depending on how you want to look at it, multiple times in the law as a judgment of God, a discipline of God on the nation for her sin. So it's reasonable to assume um, in the time of the judges especially, that probably the nation was apostatizing and so God was disciplining them with famine. And I pointed out that it's a sad reality, but a true one, that the people of God are not preserved from the judgment uh, that the, the, the nation endures as a result of her sin and apostasy and rebellion. So <clears throat> um, Naomi and, and Elimelech flee for Moab, and, and shortly after they're established there, Elimelech dies for a cause unknown to us. Um, so Naomi is left there with her two boys in Moab. The sons um, are eventually joined to Moabite women in marriage. One woman is named Orpah, and the other woman is named Ruth. And after 10 years, her sons, Naomi's sons, also pass away. So now you've got the widowed Naomi and two additional widows, her daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law. Um, so in the midst of the grief of that, Naomi gets word from back home, back in Israel, that the famine has broken. So she gathers her things and, and prepares to return to Israel. And her widowed daughters-in-law insist on accompanying her. Um, she argues against it and encourages them to go back to their gods and seek new husbands. Here, I pointed out that grief causes us to think incorrectly. Naomi seems to believe that her only use to Orpah and Ruth is as a producer of men for them to marry. Naomi seems to think Ruth and Orpah would be better off engaged in idolatry than following the one true God. It cannot be that Naomi actually thinks these things, though. So what I said was, things happen to the brain when we are in the midst of grief. And I took some time to help us understand why grief is so tenacious and lasts for years after the event which produces it. I was told by multiple people after that message that they were greatly helped by it. So let me reiterate. I am a repository of information that I have consumed, not the original thinker of any of those thoughts. And I don't want anybody to misinterpret the benefit that they derive from this pulpit ministry as my brilliance, because it's not. It's the kindness of God working through the Holy Spirit and common means whereby I gather information and redistribute it to you as I think it has application and is fit for the text. However. If you're curious, that sermon is available at sbcne.org, dated March 12, 2003, titled On Grieving. As a result of Naomi's insistence, Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, returns home, but Ruth refuses and establishes a covenant with her mother-in-law. So 
Naomi stops talking about it, and Ruth is allowed to accompany her. Upon returning to Bethlehem, Naomi is very well received. All the folks are excited to see her, and they're exclaiming her name. Now, Naomi means delightful or pleasant. And uh, Naomi doesn't feel delight, nor does she desire to be reminded of the promise attached to her name. So she advises everyone to call her Mara, because, quote, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I pointed out that one of the reasons we struggle profoundly when we're in the midst of grief is that we simply cannot play the tape forward. We lack the ability when we're in the middle of great sorrow. There are circumstances in life where you can play the tape forward. Right? So if you're a young man you're thinking about joining the armed services and you get to basic training, you can play the tape forward and realize that this misery is going to end. And it will end with you uh, being shipped off somewhere with responsibilities. But basic training lasts as long as it's going to last and you just have to endure it, right? If you're pregnant, you can play the tape forward in the midst of that you know, physical discomfort and misery. And there's a delightful conclusion, hopefully, Lord willing, to, to the pregnancy. If you're sick with the flu, unless it's COVID, you're doomed. If you have COVID, you're going to die. But if you're sick with the good old-fashioned flu, then there's an end in sight. Generally speaking, you have, a, you have a reasonable expectation that this isn't going to take you out. Unless you've got some other corresponding health issue. When you're in the midst of the kind of grief that flows from the loss of your husband and your sons. And so you have been, in a sense, orphaned in a, in a foreign land at a time when women were, were not viewed with the kind of egalitarianism that we have in 2023. You're, you're going to experience no reasonable expectation of joy. That's how that situation would leave you from a human perspective, because grief makes us think wrong. I also pointed out that we do have the benefit of being able to play the tape forward. Most of you have read Ruth before. You know how the story ends. You understand contextually what's happening. So you skip the misery. The promises of eternity will seem intangible and uncertain to you at times. Do you hear me? The promises of eternity for the child of God who has faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, is it? All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Well, when you're going through it, whatever it is, that almost seems beyond comprehension. Someday, this will be over. You're going to be fine. Seems difficult to grasp. Yet we have them and a life to come to look forward to. Amen? Where we left Naomi and Ruth was in Bethlehem, grieving. So Ruth 2, 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan 
of Elimelech. So we learn of a new character. We don't meet him yet. But we learn of him, a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, a worthy man, which I appreciate what the ESV is trying to do here, and it's the, the, the flavor is correct. But for those of us who, who are more romantic or sentimental of heart, we like hearing that he's a worthy man, right? The problem is it would be more literally translated a powerful man or a wealthy man. If we just wanted to go with the actual, I mean, neither of those things make him less worthy. But I want to be clear: there's two words here from which the ESV gets worthy. We've got gafer, which means strong or great or even overpowering, and then the second word is chayil. You like that? Years of watching Star Trek. Uh, I need to get this under control. Uh, that word, I'm not going to say again, means riches, wealth, power, or valor. So you've got great, strong, overpowering, riches, wealth, power, valor. The configuration is odd, though. Why would we put these two words together? It, because they can both be translated to mean redundant things. I think the ESV tries to get us the flavor of the poetry, folks. It's a love story. It's kind of sweet. So think Nicholas Sparks... Right? So finally, we, we learn his name. That's the third thing. Boaz. That's it. We don't beat him. We're just made aware of his existence at the beginning there. Ruth is continually referred to as the Moabite, in case we forget. Right? Uh, I think it's worth mentioning, though, because what she does here is extremely Jewish or Israelite of her. Quick glance, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 will explain what I mean. In Leviticus 19:9, the law says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, and neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. A few of you are literally having a conversation right now, so I know you didn't hear that or pay attention. Deuteronomy 24 and 19, thankfully, the Bible repeats itself because it knows how we operate on Sunday morning, right? Was that too passive-aggressive for the pulpit? I'm sorry. Dude, I'm not. But I'll get sorry. By this afternoon, I'll be sorry. Deuteronomy 24 and 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall <laughs> which is just funny to me, uh, you shall not go over them again. One beating is sufficient. Uh, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. So Ruth's plan suggests to me that she was aware of these sundry laws. I want to believe it's because Naomi had been teaching her the law of God. So Ruth asks Naomi for permission to go and glean after him in whose sight she might find favor. Two things this shows us, all right? So if you're under the age of, if you're not married, how's that? And you're a woman, 
I think this is, I have daughters, so I'm allowed to do this. Uh, I think there's a couple of things you can, you can gather from this. First, note Naomi and the power that she has over Ruth. Ruth asks Naomi's permission to go and do this thing, which is already, the permission has already been given to her by the law of God to go, and she's a widow, and she's fatherless, relatively speaking. But she doesn't assume that every idea she has is a good one. Young women, take note. Young women, take note. Not every idea you have is a good one. A lot of hay gets made in our culture and in our generation about the importance of young men having mentors, coaches, and counsel, right? Especially in Christian circles. As a father of a boy and two girls, I can assure you young women need counsel just as much. Just as much. And both young men and women need the humility to hear and heed good counsel. Following me, young men and ladies. Second, Ruth is looking for someone who will show her favor. So first was, Ruth doesn't believe as a young woman that every idea that pops into her head is a good one. So she seeks counsel from Naomi. Second, what she wants to do is go and find favor, not just glean. Favor is grace, approval, mercy, or preference. So she's not just looking for food, she's looking for help. You get the picture? So she heads out and starts gleaning in the field. Incidentally, incidentally, that Boaz owns. Verse 4. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? I mean, to begin with, we got to acknowledge that this must be a fun place to work, right? Could you imagine? Uh, those of us who work in the secular marketplace, uh, our boss coming in and saying, the Lord be with you. And the response of the reapers tells us something about Boaz too, because if your boss did come in and say this, there'd probably be a part of you that would be like, yeah, blow it out your ear with your watch that costs more than my car. There's that attitude at work when you're resentful towards the authority that you have at Oh, that's fine. It's just me. Okay. All right. You all are so mature. I'm sorry for the taking that bunny trail. I think these men genuinely like Boaz. That's what I think. Boaz approaches the young man in charge, which should teach us something. And I include myself in the us here because this year I'll be 43, which makes me officially old, at least according to myself when I was 20. 43 years old. This teaches us something about whether young men can be put in charge of anything. He approaches the young man who is in charge of the reapers and asks about Ruth. Now take careful note of how this manager describes her. Six. The servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Um, all right. I think it matters. Ruth does not slink onto the field and scurry around trying to avoid notice, snatching up grain like a teenage boy raiding the pantry after everyone's gone to bed. She finds the person in charge, and she asks permission. This demonstrates humility. Because what? Because this is her admitting she needs the charity afforded to her by the Old Testament law, by the law of God. Boy, that's hard to admit when you need charity. Another thing we get confirmation of, I'm helped by this, that, that Ruth is a young woman. Do you see it? The young manager, if Boaz had described her as a young woman, I'd be like, she could still be anywhere from 40 down to, you know, 16. But when the young man describes her as a young woman, I get the sense she's pretty young. Like, she's not... Never mind. Finally, we see something of her work ethic. Work ethic. She started early in the morning, and she's been working... Until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep, keep close to my young women, rather. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz wastes no time he immediately approaches youth, and the kindness that Boaz shows Ruth is threefold. First, he calls her daughter. Now, this language serves to remove any threat which all attractive young women face from all men of any age. Am I right? Yeah, Christian men should mark this down. Young women in our midst should be treated like daughters, and old women in our midst should be treated like mothers. I will leave it to the women to sort out which they prefer. The point is that Boaz is not only kind to Ruth, but he's careful with her. He's gentle with her. His language is marked by consideration because Boaz understands this critical fact. Listen, please, especially if you feel like you might be a feminist, please listen. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't get defensive. I'm just asking you especially to listen to this. A truly masculine feature, a truly masculine feature is that of protector. That's what a real man ought to be. Our culture, especially amongst the militant so-called fourth wave feminists, decries all things masculine. It's toxic. They can say, no, 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 we don't mean all masculinity, but I defy you to find for me the aspects of masculinity that the militant feminist is not opposed to. You can't. It's all toxic. And they've been helped by men who have been abusive historically. 
a nation which has had, I think, a fairly misogynistic and chauvinistic view of women, and a government which is corrupt and figured out, I don't know, about 100 years ago that one way to get control of everybody's money would be to get men out of their homes. How do you do that? Well, you take care of the women so they don't need the men anymore. So women have rejected the traditional husband-slash-father-slash-protector in favor of liberation. Some of you are looking down. I'm assuming it's not that you feel bad. What happens when women reject masculinity and don't leave? (laughs) She's upset. We'll talk after. What happens when women reject the masculinity of men? Well, men, because, to some degree, because they've been raised in fatherless homes or virtually fatherless homes, many men grow up and take one of two routes, routes, however you want to say it. They view women as objects. That's route number one, hence pornography and all of its cousins on Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat have reached record levels of consumption. So men view women as objects or they view women as superior and seek to consent to their every whim. That's, that's what a good man does. So you've got sitcoms and you know, routine presentations of men in all of our forms of entertainment as buffoons incapable of making a good decision. Ha, 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 husbands are dumb, you don't have to listen to them, right? I probably shouldn't have gotten snarky like that, I apologize. There are droves and droves of what C.S. Lewis calls men without chests lacking in most of the skills which fall into the category of masculinity. And what he means by that phrase is this. A man's chest is the indispensable liaison between the cerebral man and the visceral man. It may be said that by this middle element, the man is man. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. Without chests, we are unable to have confidence that we can grasp objective truth. Permit me to give you an example. Men, generally speaking, are stronger, faster, larger, and more aggressive than women. That's an objective truth. To prove it, uh, I think it was a junior varsity boys soccer team that defeated the women's U.S. Grown women's soccer team, four matches in a row. Uh, the 200th-ranked men's tennis player beat Serena or Venus, one of the two, match after match after match after match. Women generally don't get into the octagon with men who claim to be men. Now, none of that makes men better or even more dangerous than women truth be told, but it does make us different. It does make us different. You remove a man's heart, and what you're left with is a guy driven by his head or his stomach. And that's a dangerous man indeed. The alternative is demonstrated by Boaz. Be a masculine protector. 
Regard the women in your life as mother or daughter unless she is your bride. Now, you might wonder why I don't say sister. And the reason is, frankly, I've seen how some young men treat their sisters, and I'm not an advocate for that. <laughs> Second, so that's first. The first thing that we said about Boaz was that he calls her daughter and removes the threat. Second, he guides her in her work rather than remove her from it. He guides her in her work rather than remove her from it. My woman's place is in the kitchen. Well, not according to the Bible and not according to Boaz. Keep your eyes on these young women right here so you don't wander into another man's field and thereby into danger. I've charged the young men not to touch you. Now, this might annoy you a little bit if you're a young woman on the prowl that the guys like the young men are not to touch you. Ah, man. But that's not what Ruth is here to do. She's here to work. I can't imagine the relief that hearing this would offer a vulnerable young woman. The ladies will guide you and the men are going to leave you alone. Beautiful. Sounds great, right? If you're a woman, maybe not. The third kindness Boaz offers is practical provision. So not only can you glean and not only am I encouraging you to glean from my field and stay with these maids and don't worry about the guys, but they're going to draw water for you. So here's where we stand. Ruth is humble, hardworking, brave, and in my opinion, an absolute sweetheart. All right. Boaz is just a really, really good guy. And I hope, like I almost put the picture in, so I can put it, but I hope you're all envisioning Sean Connery and young Catherine Zeta-Jones from the movie Entrapment at this point. That's where we're headed. Verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a fool? Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. I mean, could she be any sweeter? The humility on display here is breathtaking, but let's unpack what's happening. Remember, Ruth has set out to find favor. Verse 2, she goes to Naomi and says, hey, let me go out and glean in the fields in whose sight I might find favor. Then she finds favor. Yet, what do we not see? She went out seeking favor. She's found favor. And we don't see entitlement. Right. We don't see her go, that's right. I'm sorry. Again, I, I, I'm not sorry. I have daughters. I'm allowed to do that. How many of our prayers... If you stop and take inventory, and I don't know how far back you have to go, I only need to go back maybe 24 hours. How many of our prayers have we prayed in earnest, asking God for some piece of provision, whether it's some emotional help, some spiritual help, some mental help, some physical help? 
He answers in breathtaking fashion, providing precisely what we need, and we never even bother to thank him. So take a lesson from Ruth here. She falls on her face, literally, probably because of the sheer relief of having her prayer for favor answered. She cites her immigrant status as a reason why Boaz should take no notice of her, and Boaz responds by citing the kindness that Ruth has shown to Naomi. He points out the following. You left your home, you left your family, you came to a foreign land, you came out here and worked all day in the heat, and you did it for your mother-in-law. Five things Boaz already knows about Ruth. As someone who struggles to leave Nebraska for my mother-in-law, I understand why Boaz is impressed. I'm just, it's kind of amazing. Ruth would have been more comfortable staying in Moab, but it is her heart for Naomi which draws her to Israel. That isn't all Boaz says. He points out something else too. You've sought refuge under the wings of the Almighty, the God of Israel. Listen, this is important. Boaz's addition of this line about sheltering under the wings of God is very instructive. Two things, right? First, when we receive help from human hands, we should note that it is the providence and the grace of God which supplied those hands. Let me say it again. When we receive some help, some counsel, some assistance, some instruction, some practical lifting of something heavy, in our lives, we need to recognize it is the providence of God that supplied those hands. Because, man, we are quick to blame God when towers start falling down, when earthquakes happen, when tornadoes rip through. Why would God do this? But we don't stop to note the myriad things that he provides through common means. The hands that have helped you have been provided by God. Second, when we help someone else, we should seek to convey the same truth. Part of the reason that the church has lost so much credibility is that her generosity is done with this kind of like philanthropic mindset. So the church does what she does, but she does it expecting recognition. Instead of doing it because we recognize what God has done for us. So like we're going we're gonna to feed the staff here next month in April. For, I think it's for parent-teacher conferences. It might be for something else. And I just like, I want us to put on a spread. I don't want us to order a pizza. I want us to feed them real well. Because it's an opportunity for us to put on display, even though we're not a wealthy church and we're not a big church, it's an opportunity for us to put on display how good we believe God has been to us. Amen? Ruth closes the discussion with this final expression of gratitude and lets Boaz know that he's been a great comfort to her. And I think we can safely assume she, she resumed her work. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. He passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. She had some left over. 
When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. Also, pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So now Ruth is invited to dine with the employees. She eats until she's full, and she even has leftovers. Note that she doesn't take this to mean that she doesn't need to work anymore, all right? So now I'm going to meddle a little bit, but I'm going to do it at my own expense, lest any of you feel uncomfortable. Friday, uh, we hit, uh, it was about 1 o'clock. The person normally in charge of our plan of the day for my department was off Thursday and Friday. And he sent out, he'll never hear this, he sent out the most disorganized disaster of an instructive email I've possibly ever read in my life, Wednesday night, which had some little details tucked at the bottom that nobody ever reads, right, about what we needed to get done Thursday and Friday. Well, this discovery was made late Friday. Well, like I said, it was about one. That may not seem late to you, but I start at six. So at 1 p.m., we should be approaching the end of the day. I rarely manage it, but we should be. I met with my manager shortly after that, and I just said, look, here's the deal. Yeah, it was in the email, but it, look how convoluted it is and how difficult it would be for us to figure out we had these additional tasks and that they needed to be done today or by today. And I said, I think we should just cut the team loose. We'll send this stuff out on Monday. And she was like, yeah, it's not worth staying late for. All right. So walk back into my department to share the good news. And my trainee, the gal that I've been training since January, is about halfway through the first step of getting this work done. Just in the time I went out to visit with my manager. And I see what she's doing, and I'm like, man, dang it. Now there's hope in sight. We could actually make this happen. But the only thing I felt was resentment and bitterness because I had already committed in my own mind to being home at 2.30. Just putting in my 8 and going home. I didn't get home till 4. I wasn't real happy about it. And then, lo and behold, as I'm preparing my sermon, I come to this. Ruth gets to dine with Boaz and his employees. She eats till she's full. She gathers the leftovers. Why didn't she take that to mean she could be done for the day? And I was like, all right, lesson learned, God. I'm not going to say anything about this in my sermon, though, because that's none of their business. And the Lord was insistent. I didn't hear an audible voice. But somehow this has made it into my notes. So our willingness to work, you, you're hearing me, right? Our willingness to work is often the difference between us experiencing God's blessing or missing it altogether. Because Ruth arises to glean, even after Boaz feeds her a wonderful meal, because she arises to glean again in the afternoon, the fountain of blessing is opened up even more. 
Boaz tells his workers to start accidentally dropping whole heads of grain for her to, to pick up and make things even easier on her. So listen, again, myself in the crosshairs, none of you. Sometimes we just don't want to work. We want to go home and rest. And sometimes we should. Like Matt should. Matt never wants to leave on time. I always want to leave on time. Can I get an amen, colors? Amen. He should not listen to what I'm saying right now. Sometimes we don't want to work. We just want to go home and rest. Remember this moment, the next time you suspect it's your own laziness pointing you towards the parking lot. Ruth got most of her grain after lunch. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw <laughs> what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food she had left over after being satisfied. Now, ephah is six dry gallons. Um, I put it in those terms because it's easy for me to imagine the size of a five-gallon bucket. You tracking? It's a heaping five-gallon bucket. And near as I can figure, with all the weights and measures and stuff that I've got in my books, it's around 42 pounds of barley. Uh, the dog food that we buy comes in 35-pound bags, and I have to bring it in, and I have to fill the dog food container because it's too heavy. What did that say? Oh, she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about 42 pounds of barley, and she took it up with one hand. It doesn't say that. And went into the city. So here comes Ruth, trudging back from the fields, having spent the entire day, sunrise to sunset, gleaning, hauling a 42-pound bag of barley and some roasted barley and leftover wine to boot. And there waits Naomi. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. There waits Mara to see Ruth plop herself exhausted on a cushion inside. Behold, the provision of God in the midst of a frowning providence. It may be harder to find them when your eyes are clouded with grief, but there are kindnesses and blessings from God even in the darkest moments. Ruth returns with enough food for weeks and her leftovers from an unexpected lunch with the owner of the field. Naomi asks the obvious question. By the way, it's my privilege to carry the dog food in. I'm just saying for like frame of reference, okay? 19, her mother-in-law said to her, um, where'd you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, well, besides this, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, whoop. Whoop. Up till now, I would just like to point out she was Ruth the Moabite. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good 
my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now we need a little help here because the, Naomi uses the word redeemer. Unfortunately, we're out of time. And the rest of the story kind of unpacks that whole concept. So we're going to pause here. But I want us to mark the change in Naomi's outlook, which is revealed, I think, by her change in language. Verse 20 of chapter 1. Naomi says, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Verse 20 of chapter 2, she says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What changed? Well, sometimes, folks, we just need a reminder of God's goodness to bring us back to our senses. Amen? So two points to make as we move towards the observation of the Lord's Supper. First, a redeemer is one who rescues or delivers someone else by paying a price. All of us have accrued an incomprehensible debt to God by sinning flagrantly and brazenly against him. I don't know your secrets, but you do. I don't know what you've done, but you do. And we know that the price for our sin is death. So here's what we've done. We've exchanged our lives for the pleasures of evil. We need a redeemer. Lest we lose our lives. We need someone to redeem us. If God doesn't redeem us, when we finally die, listen, especially children, listen, this is important. I don't often do this. So you should listen. If you're young, you should listen. If we die not believing in the person the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we will stand before God on judgment day and be found guilty, be found owing him, and be sent as a result to an eternity in hell separated from God. Now, hell is described by the Bible as a lake of fire, a place of weeping, and a place of loneliness, isolation, and eternity is forever. We need someone to redeem us. So God sent Jesus Christ. He did not sin, yet he suffered. He did not disobey, yet he died. And his righteousness is given to all who trust in him and their sins are nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. That's how the Redeemer operates. So we do this in remembrance of him, the bread represents his body, which was broken because we sin and we are guilty and must be punished for it. His body was broken in our stead. The cup represents his blood, which cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. We do this to be reminded of our guilt and we do it to be reminded of his grace and goodness. Because we need the reminder, frankly. If you're anything like me, you start thinking you're pretty terrific. Second, God, 
who sent his son to be our redeemer, also sends breathtaking provision. Come on. Will he who sent his only son now not with him freely give us all things? What do you need that you think God is too mean to give you? He gave you Jesus Christ. Ask him for whatever you need. The grace to endure, to endure an impossible situation. Money to pay the bills. A car that doesn't break down. I mean, a wife, a husband, your kids to come to know him. Ask him for whatever you need. God does not send us the Redeemer, save us from eternal condemnation, and then leave us to fend for ourselves. He doesn't do that. He sends us the means to eat, be sheltered, and be cared for. So when we see Ruth in the field, and we see our pitiful efforts to gather our own resources, period. When you see Boaz show up and make her day a whole lot better and a whole lot easier, you see a picture of the Redeemer taking hold of your heart and rescuing you from sin. So let's enter this time of remembrance with gladness and gratitude.